Built Not Born, episode 122. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Jay Papazan. Jay Papazan is the best-selling author and an executive at Keller Williams Realty in Austin, Texas. Jay returns for his second appearance here on Built Not Born. Jay is the co-author alongside Keller Williams founder, Gary Keller, of the runaway best-selling book, The One Thing. The One Thing has sold over 3 million copies, uh, been translated into like 42 languages. Jay's books have appeared on national bestseller lists like 500 times, which is insane, including number one on the Wall Street Journal business book list. Jay is a phenomenal author. Uh, He's also the author of The 20 Percenter. Uh, It's a, a weekly newsletter he ships out. Today, I asked Jay to come back to speak about leadership in a crisis how a CEO thinks in times of crisis and leading people through troubled times. Jay and KW founder Gary Keller have a ridiculously great podcast called Think Like a CEO. I asked Jay to come on to discuss how to lead teams, people, individuals, companies through times of crisis like pandemics and market crashes. Uh, he shares some great best practices I was taking notes on this the third time I listened to this through the edit process. Jay just packs so much knowledge into this hour conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Also too, if you could, uh, I am going to summarize Jay's best points in the new Built Not Born blog. Please sign up for subscribers only. Subscriptions are free. Sign up to the new Built Not Born blog, one post a week summarizing the very best ideas, tips, gear, books that each guest discusses. I tease it out in a blog post that you can read in under two minutes. And just started it. Got some great feedback so far. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. One blog post a week sent directly to your email with the best wisdom of each week's guest. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with best-selling author, Jay Papazan. And remember, life is built, not born. Jay Papazan, welcome back to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Is this my second or, th- I mean, third time? I think it might. <laughs> it's at least your second. Maybe if yeah. it's not your third, we'll have to have you on a third. First off, that 20 percenter is do that to the day you die. That is so good. Love it. Just love oh, that. Love that. Um, and you're I, not even in real estate. I'm not right? really. I'm in sales, but not real estate. You and Gary mentioned about stealing ideas from other industries or competitors and bringing it in. That's what I do with your 20 percent. Or like you bring up principles, ideas, tactics. I'm like, I'm doing that in medical sales. I'm going to do that with my team. And uh, so good. And yeah, we call uh, it benchmarking. Yeah. So okay. yeah, okay. ideas are meant to be spread. Also too, you when you do those family retreats, and you have like Ryan Holiday and all these amazing people. Then you summarize that. I think I saved every one of them. And the ideas are just amazing. So that's a fraction, man. That's just a fraction. That's crazy. No, I appreciate that. I can't that. give it all away, right? The people yeah, take sure. tickets. Yeah, but it's a good highlight reel, right? 
It's, it's fantastic. I appreciate you doing that. For those looking to get to know Jay a little bit better and his backstory and how he and Gary Keller, uh, CEO of Keller Williams, wrote one of my favorite books of all time, The One Thing, direct you back to Built Not Born episode number 81 that we record maybe about a year, year and a half ago. But today, I asked Jay to come back on the show to talk about leadership and the mindset of leadership. Him and Gary have done a phenomenal podcast called Think Like a CEO. And Jay, I was hoping maybe we could go discuss leadership, how to run organizations, and how we could bring those principles, theories, tactics, strategies you and Gary have used to write books, lead companies, kill it in the real estate market. Maybe we could bring to our everyday life and maybe to the businesses that that we run, each individual listens to that they run. Is that cool? Yeah, the, the, the lessons of leadership apply everywhere. Let's just kick it off broad picture. How would you define the word leadership? What is it and how would you define it? I think it's, I'm so colored because I've been working with Gary for so long and he introduced me to a different way of looking at it that fits for me. So I think most people, when you ask them what leadership is, it's being in charge. It's being responsible for others, maybe. Like I've seen all kinds of definitions. A lot of people define a leader by whether or not anybody's following them. Mm-hmm. So the the way we look at it is it's more of being a teacher. And it's a long, I'll say it slowly, but it's leadership is teaching teaching people how to think so that they do the things they need to do when they need to do them so they can get what they want when they want it. So typical of us, we're going to be very specific. And also it's a lot, but I've now like pretty much internalized it. So I'm going to say that one more time in case someone's jogging and is like, what was that? Here's the good news. Teaching people how to think is the heart of it, but you want to teach them how to think so that they do the things they need to do when they need to do them. So they get what they want when they want it. And that's what's great is if evidence of a great leader is when people are doing the things they need to be doing, even when the leader's not present. Yeah. If they're only doing it when you're watching them, are you have you really led them to grow? Or are they just there to follow orders? A true leader creates other leaders, right? I oh, mean, yeah. It's true, yeah. So like, if you can't say you're a great leader, if you've been in the business for 30 years and there's no great leader that's come out of your program, you might have been in charge, but I kind of question if you were leading, right? Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say, but I'm going to give you a nuance. I actually think that the beginning of leadership, and it's sometimes where it ends, is self-leadership. Mm-hmm. Like how we learn to lead ourselves. Okay. I think it's very hard to lead others without leading yourself. People yeah. will follow you, but at some point, they see that the words and acts don't align. Mm-hmm. And I do know some people that are great action leaders. They're leading themselves. They're jumping in to do what needs to be done. And in some ways, they're making leaders, but they're not necessarily teaching them how to think. They're showing them how to think. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But it starts with leading yourself. Um, So like, I, I know a few leaders that are in that category, but like, yeah, they're not actually doing the other half of it. So now you've got me thinking. I was trying to find the exception because that's where my brain goes. Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate that. So you start off the the uh, podcast, Think Like a CEO, the first season, you and Gary, there's a great quote uh, that Gary said a couple of times. 
uh, you and Gary discussed, life is a series of decision-making moments. And uh, so you talk about self-leadership, decision-making moments. There are points where you have to decide what to do. You have to prioritize and execute. There's so much coming at everyone. You have to filter through the noise to figure out what your most high-value task Get that task, schedule it on your calendar, protect that time, and execute that time to work on the most important thing. Right? Does that mean is that is that like the start of that decision making moment? Well, that's where it lines up on a day to day basis, right? Am I leading myself in the sense that like I've I know what I need to do? Am I clear about it? Am I clear about the progress I need to make? Do I have time protected to go do that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, like when you were saying that, like I told you, like we were we planned them. We outline them and then we go in front of the microphones and record them. Okay. And I personally, my team does, I don't go back and listen to them often. I've done a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. When you first said that quote, my first connection was to do this idea of milestones. Like if I asked you, Joe, how did you get to where you are today, right? In, in your sales career and doing a podcast, you could look over your shoulder And there's probably a series of relationships and milestone moments that got you where you are today. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to see those in the rearview mirror than it is to identify them when they're happening. And so a lot of times, you've got to be leading yourself that day-to-day so that when that moment arrives, and you don't know it's a milestone moment, that you're about to meet the love of your life Mm -hmm. right around the corner or the the partner that's going to help you launch the venture of your dreams. Whatever that is, you've got to be day by day present and able to kind of hopefully identify that moment and take that's what like that's where it really shows up in those moments. Like I know Gary can trace them in his career and I can too. Everyone's defined by the big moments and totally makes sense. Yeah, but they're also like the reason they get defined by them is most of the time, it's not like they were slacking all the time. And then that day they got to be the hero. We read about those sometimes in the news. Ordinary guy stops the bank robbers, right? Whatever that is. And it, yeah. it made for TV, movie, great, awesome. A lot of times someone is showing up on the corner, doing exactly what they needed to do, and then patiently waiting for time timing to find them, mm-hmm. right? It just means that you're doing it every day. And if you do it every day, sometimes luck will strike at a disproportionate rate. Mm-hmm. It's that whole thing. Like the more I practice, the luckier I am. Can't remember. Was that Arnold Palmer or Jack? Yeah, Nicholas that said one, that. yeah, one of the golfers. It's easy to lead like on a sunny day where you're growing at twenty percent and the person in charge and it's smooth sailing. Like it's easy to captain a ship where you're sailing through a eighty degree harbor and there's no wind and the water's eighty degrees. Like anyone can do that almost. But like what you know, life's going to strike. For, fortune's going to turn. The economy's going to crash. One of the things I found so interesting is that you and Gary went into the Great Recession in 2007, number four in your market. And then when the dust settled and the economy came back, you were number one. Yeah. I mean, that is, we're talking about leadership. What what caused that? And what did you guys focus on when it got really bad? Look at the economy was going to crash, especially real estate. It's real easy not to buy a house when everything's bad. What did you guys focus on? How'd you do that? Well, one of the blessings of working with Gary is it wasn't his first downturn. And remember, when you're living in history, you don't know the size of it. Okay. Sure. You know, when our grandparents were in World War II, they didn't know that it was World War II, right? <laughs> they didn't know when it was going to end, any of that stuff. They just knew that the allies and the access were fighting around the world. Mm-hmm. Like, in the Great Recession, like 
they didn't call it the Great Recession until like 2013. <laughs> yeah, sure. In the beginning, it was just like recession, and we were afraid it was going to be a depression. Yep. So Gary had been through a few of those. Um, in Texas, there was a savings and loan bust when he was first launching the company that was devastating. The local board of realtors here went from like 4,000 to under 2,000 in less than a year. Mm -hmm. And so he had already seen what happens when the world just completely, your world gets devastated. And he'd observed what the best people do. So when it's funny, like he's so vigilant, having survived that early in the company, he's always waiting for it to happen. One, because he knows how to behave and he sees it as an opportunity because of that. Most people panic. They either bury their head in the sand and hope it goes away, or they do the wrong thing. And we actually wrote a whole book, Shift, about mm -hmm. the lessons he's learned. And that is actually one of the first things we did during the shift. I want to say most of the world did not recognize us as being in a serious recession until Lehman Brothers. And I want to say that was 2008. Mm -hmm. um, when that collapsed, everybody was like, okay, this just got very real. Yep. How bad can this be? In the fall of 2005, we were masterminding with the top people in our business. And Gary, because he'd been through two or three at that point in his career, one of them said, are y'all seeing anything strange? Because remember, 2005, 2006, if you go back and look at home prices, mm -hmm. they were going through the roof. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. I mean, it was the hottest and it was the bubble that was about to burst. One of the top agents said, it's weird. I've just been watching for two straight months. The the inquiries to look at our homes have been going down, down, down. And so a listing agent, which is very rare, right? A lot of people don't realize how few agents list a lot of homes. Very few do that. Mm -hmm. Everybody lists one or two if they're actually in the business. But for you to be having 10 or 20 listings a month, you're in the top 1% of the 1%. That's who's in the room. And everybody said, my showings is going down. My showings is going down. And I remember like, we all realized, okay, this is the canary. And Gary called it. It's like, this is the first step that buyers, they've had enough. They won't come and look at it. This is before they back out of contracts and say no more. And we actually started preparing for the shift almost two and a half years before it was officially recognized. Now, by the way, 2006, we saw this weird thing where it was that all the signs were starting to turn, but they weren't yet negative. So it's the velocity of the shift. Mm -hmm. You're like, but wait, there's still only three months of inventory. Yeah, but it went from one month to three months in, in 26 days. Mm -hmm. Like the velocity of change and the direction of change is negative. So, wow, how do we behave? We studied. We masterminded education and coaching, accountability. Um, from a sales standpoint, you should know this. We went very heavily into prospecting, right? Mm -hmm. Direct contact, picking up the phone, knocking on their door, meeting them in person. One, because it costs you less money. And two, you find out what people are responding to. And when you find out, like I remember, it, I don't even know why it took us so long to figure it out, but it took us like 18 months. I was interviewing a guy. And he said, the line that I'm using right now to just hook people is, I know the market stinks, but if I found a deal, Joe, would you be interested if I found a deal? And they're like, 
Well, yeah, that's the whole point. Nobody was buying anything because they were waiting for the screaming hot deal. It goes, well, every week I put out my best deals in the market list, but I only do it for my clients. If you would like to sign an exclusive work with me contract, I'd be happy to share the best bargains every single week. And he was just stacking them up. All the people that had dry powder to go spend in that market. And I I have one regret, Joe, is that we weren't buyers. We weren't sellers. But my wife and I weren't yet at a place where we had the resources to pay cash for assets. I know lots of people who did, and they they made a killing. So anyway, I'm 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 sure I've strayed from your question. No, you hit it right on. Very serious. We cut expenses. We got into prospecting. We made sure that we had qualified leads because most people were not serious, and we got very very. Here's the the for people not in real estate. We went right back to the basics. Mm-hmm. And we did not get distracted by anything else. Yeah, you may, th- thank you for sharing that. That is such a game plan for like a recession or, or a tough area. You mentioned that uh, a few times in the podcast where you guys, char- where Keller Williams, you charged into the storm. You leaned into it. You acknowledged it. You leaned into it. You ran through it. And uh, you basically kept consistently doing things to set yourself up regardless of what happens. Kind of like call knocking on doors. And you did the simple things well, right? Do the simple things well. Back to the basics. You know, uh, that story of Charge the Storm is interesting. And it was just a metaphor. I've read about it in a few books. But Gary, I don't know where he got it that time. But a lot of times, animals that are being in a snowstorm, a winter snowstorm, they will hunker down and wait for it to pass. The buffalo, like creature of the plains, where when weather happens, it happens and it happens bad. For whatever reason, they've evolved where they actually walk into the storm. Mm-hmm. And the whole point is they get out the other side faster. Yeah. And that's what that charge the storm reference was about. Like we have a choice. We can hunker and hope that it doesn't stall out right above us, or we can start taking action and get out like head head right at it. And I love that attitude. Yeah. And you mentioned the data, the research you did is that Companies that give up market share, especially during the recession, rarely get it back. Oh, I love that you thought of that. That's great. That's yeah. a quote that I really attached myself to. There's a guy named, I want to say his name is Jeffrey Calkin. He was a Fortune or a Forbes writer, and he wrote a book called The Upside of the Downturn. And that was my biggest takeaway. There's actually two takeaways, but that was the biggest one is that again and again, companies who gave up market share during a recession rarely got it back. And the people who gained it didn't give it back. Mm-hmm. So it was like, this is not when we make a lot of profit. This is when we gain a lot of market share became kind of our attitude. Yeah, Because when the market comes back and we've gone from, like we went from like 7% to like 14%. And when the market explodes upwards, now you've got twice as much market share, you get twice as much of the benefit. And then when things go up, when the you know good times always return. I mean, you look at just yeah, the three that I- cycle. It's a cycle. Like the three I remember and like I could vividly, I was not part of, but I was part of the economy and, and work. You had 9-11. Uh, then you had the 2007, 2008, like r- crash yeah. or recession. And then we had co- uh, uh, COVID, right? So you had one, two, three, where the stock market, real estate down, but then it just comes up stronger than ever. You got you have to weather the storm. And then you, you and Gary came up with, either I teased this out or you had a, an episode on this, uh, your recession mindset, six things to do when things go bad to to come out the other, store, other side stronger. 
So I'll run these by you. Tell me what just top of mind what you think. First one, be positive in a recession. Don't have a recession mindset. Um, I mean, it's so huge. Like it's you're already awesome, discouraged. You can either dwell on the stuff that you can't control. Yep. And then, you know what? Like I, what I've learned, Joe, like yeah. the longer I've tried to live a big life and you just get used to failure, you get used to adversity and you still go through that stage of woe is me. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But then you move through it faster. And so especially as a leader, mm-hmm. the faster we can get from the bad part of what's happening is to the opportunity of what's happening is then our people can get behind that too. Yep. Whenever we've gone through rough times in my, in the companies that I've run or the divisions that I've run for Gary's companies, I usually tell them one thing that's for certain. It's not just companies that gain market share and jump ahead. People do too. Mm-hmm. When there's a lot of change, that's one of the times in your career, it'll be really hard. It won't be fun. But that's where people make giant leaps forward yeah. because there's not enough people to do the work. And you can raise your hand and say, I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing to learn. Right. So, I've always yeah. and the opportunity like you don't have to wait years for that opportunity because you've, quote, earned it. The market has given you the opportunity to take leap forward and say, can we just take that attitude into this market? Absolutely. Two things. One, what you said and something that uh, I had a Vietnam vet say a couple of weeks ago on the podcast one, this this is like the buffalo. You charge into the storm to get to the other side faster, right? You actually lean into it and go in through it. Yeah. So sooner you get through it, the more the sooner you you do the benefit of the good things you did during it. I just had a, a Vietnam veteran named Robin Bartlett. He was an Army Ranger, 82nd Airborne member in Vietnam. Wow. And he's he comes from a family of West Pointers. And he said it took my grandfather 10 years to be a captain. It took my dad eight years to be a captain. It took me one year to be a captain because I was in combat and wherever was heavy casualties. I was in the, I was in the thick of it. And after one year, like we're, you know, he was leading his troops. And after a year, they're like, you're going to be a first lieutenant. He got promoted so much faster because he was in the midst of chaos and he was weathering the storm. Now, if your kid joined the army, you would not wish the Vietnam war on them. Yeah, sure. No. By no stress. But if the Vietnam War happened to them yep. and they were committed to that, you'd be like, you know what? Here's what might be a blessing for you. Mm-hmm. You're going to accumulate experiences that some soldiers never get. And that will allow you to have a career as big as you want in this field. So that's a very hardcore example, but it's true everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. I've seen it where. Half the staff, you know, like we're not returning to the office, we're quitting. Yeah. Well, guess what? Those few that stayed loyal now have one, two or three jobs each, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Probably aren't going to earn a raise because the company could just die. But they also have the extraordinary opportunity mm-hmm. to show what they're made of in extraordinary circumstances and build the trust of the leadership and ownership. So like always, sometimes you want to be as like really smart out the response when someone's trying to be pointing out the positive. What you don't want to do is be Pollyanna-ish. Okay. You want to be realistic, acknowledge that this comes with a giant, you know, you know, the, I can't think of a nice way to say it, basically a shit sandwich. Like <laughs> it comes with that too, yep. but there's opportunity. I think if you're real about it, people will hear you. If yep. you're Pollyanna-ish, they won't believe you and they'll go right back to the negative self-talk. Yeah, that's so true. No, thanks for sharing that. Uh, second one, second part of the recession mindset, continually play offense. We'll always have a growth mindset, always yeah. on the attack. 
And that's so counterintuitive because when things are going I bad, you, the, want, you want to knuckle down and, and you want to play defense usually. Sometimes you think that, right? I mean, that's kind of human nature to a degree. Or you you pitch the things that look could be seen as defense as offensive maneuvers. Yeah. Like okay. even expense cutting, right? Like you have to find your margin. Mm-hmm. If you've got your expenses built around selling 100 widgets a week and you're now selling 75, you've got to find your financial footing fast. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because you are nothing if not on the defensive if you're losing money. And so like Gary's thought on that is like the first company to find their margin can then take that margin and attack the enemy. Mm-hmm. If I get to where I can make money selling 75 widgets close, not as much as I made selling a hundred, but I'm now positive I can take that incremental gain while my competitor is still reeling, trying to find it. Mm-hmm. And I can start discounting my widgets. Hey, I know that Joe sells his for 26 cents. I'm going to put mine on sale for 22 mm-hmm. and I'm going to try to make my competitors pain worse yep. so that I can get market share. So the offense in a shift is not necessarily for profit, but for mind share and market share with the, whatever industry you're in. And when the market stabilizes, that's when you can more likely profit from it. Yeah. I, I like the mind share too, market share and mind share. I never heard a term that way. That is great. Well, then, if you're if you're in sales, you're looking for mind share, right? Yeah, and so the true, people yeah. who might buy your products. Absolutely no, because then they, then they they use you, and then all of a sudden, when things get good, and then they when they go from a hundred uses a month to back to their three hundred, right? And then all of a sudden, you're 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 back in the game. Uh, it's so cool. That's really and, good. And who was there for them? Your customers sometimes are suffering too. Yep. Who was there? Saying, look, I mean, I can take it down to this level. Like, how did you help them through it? Yeah. Because they they won't necessarily, but they often are loyal to you because you won that mind share by being the person who stood out. Yeah. How did you help them during the, 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 the downturn? That's great. And then I love the third one. Listen more than ever. And that, 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 that sounds great. But then also you said, not just what you listen to. Two things I wrote down from that. Share best practices even with your competitors. Yeah. That is cool. Could you go into that? What you how, how you guys did that? I thought that was really creative. Well, I think right now you're looking for, has anybody figured out what's actually working in this market? Mm-hmm. Has anybody figured out the answer or an answer? Mm-hmm. And not every industry is a zero-sum game. I know some folks who have coaching programs, and by and large, if you have an executive coach, you're not going to hire a second one. You're going to fire yours and hire the other one. So like, mm-hmm. I know some coaching companies, and they some people might say it doesn't have to be that way, but I've experienced that. As a book author, Like I've always felt liberated. When people are coming from pain to the bookshelf, I need to solve my productivity problem. They don't mm-hmm. just buy our book. They buy Atomic Habits. They buy, you know, Getting Stuff Done by David Allen. They buy all of the books because it's a, our, our people tend to shop a category and not be that exclusive. If they really want to solve a problem, they go buy a stack of books and they read them one at a time. You hope yours is first. Yep. So it's not that sort of competitiveness. Um, I live in the world where we have a book, we sell training and coaching. And so when the market died in COVID, the story I tell from my personal experience is here we had a company 
where like 60% of our revenue came from in-person corporate training. Guess what? March of 2020, that went away. Yep. For a lot of companies until well into 2021. Well into it. So a huge part of your revenue base just goes away. Mm-hmm. I was also leading our education here for Keller Williams. And we had to pivot to virtual as fast as we could. So I started interviewing our people. I started asking them, who do you know? I went to the man that was leading our training company. And I just said, what relationships have you found so far in the industry with people who might be our competitors? But we actually get to work together. He had made good friends with someone at Franklin Covey. He had become friends with Susan Scott, who runs the Fierce who's the founder of the Fierce Conversations organization. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend that ran Exchange, John Bergdorf. And there was one other one. We started doing masterminds. And some people, all we got were, man, we're in the same boat too. Mm -hmm. Well, if I think of something, I'll call you. Like, no answers. But at least you didn't think, well, at least I'm not screwing it up. Franklin Covey is struggling. I mean, and they're Franklin Covey. Mm-hmm. So like, it, surely it's not just me. So there's psychic relief, but something in our conversation with John Bergdorf unlocked an answer is that everybody was doing Zoom bad and he had already done not just Zoom, but go to meeting. He'd already professionally figured out how to do it in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. So think about this. This is in like May of 2020. And I show up and he's got a switchboard. He's got a real like full on Canon camera with the, he's got two cameras, mm-hmm. lighting, music. He is doing multiple viewpoints for just a mastermind meeting. Wow. And he had an Elmo. So he had three camera angles he was toggling between. He could do his screen and he was doing it all seamlessly without ever losing eye contact. And he was demonstrating to me, it's like, oh, Everybody's going to hate Zoom is what he was telling us. He goes, it's really hard to train in this environment because people can be on their phones. Mm -hmm. They can be on their email. It's very hard for them to focus. So you have to perform at like a three to four X intensity to even keep their attention. And then you have to constantly be changing the dynamic. And I'm not giving away that. I mean, he poured into us for like an hour. I immediately signed up to send all of our trainers to his training. And we started implementing the next day. Wow. I bought the equipment that we needed to buy. Mm -hmm. And immediately we started winning the virtual corporate contract game. Mm -hmm. And we actually, (laughs) I was so mad. I went to go see if we could get the tax. Like if your revenue dropped a certain point and you didn't lay anybody off, there was a massive tax cut. Mm -hmm. And I went back to our accountants and they were like, no, you kind of grew revenue by the end of the year. <laughs> you had a horrible dip and you didn't lay people off. So good karma. But by the end of the year, y'all had recovered and we're up year over year. So you don't qualify. And I was like, I've never <laughs> been so mad to be so good when I saw that tax credit. You recovered way too fast. Oh my yeah, gosh. So that's what we mean, right? If, fair, you're, yeah. if your industry is open-minded about it, maybe like you're in the dry cleaning business and you, there's not a chance you're in a cutthroat competition in your town. Yep. We'll talk to someone in another town. Yeah. How, like, I would start calling people all over the country that are not my competitors and saying, how are you coping with this market? That's great. I would love to share ideas. And if I have any ideas, I'm happy to share them with you. 
Does that make sense? Oh, it does. I love how you say, like, say you're in a, a local business where maybe it's real cutthroat with the two or three in your little town or your region. You go outside your little town or region where the emotion's gone, you're not really competing with each other, and you could just share ideas. That's fantastic, that mastermind. And also, yeah. too, too, I love how you, Gary, brought it back even to, I know you're authors, but like you brought it back to the bookstore and books. Gary said, like, when he goes through challenges, you and Gary both go to the bookstore, you buy books and you learn from people that came before you could be a year before you or a hundred years before you. Right. And it's, that is such a great idea that I think goes overlooked. We're like, you're not the first person to go through a recession. You're not the first person to go through a crisis, not the first person to go through a pandemic. You could read. I remember Ryan Holiday talking about read John Barry's book, The Great Influenza of 1917 or 18, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and the whole outline, what happened in the 1917, 18 happened again. It's just different names and the clothes were different in the tech. It's like people didn't want to get the vaccine. And they, then there was a second wave and they thought it was over and it came back and they didn't yeah. trust the government. Like it's the whole thing happened again a hundred years later. It's crazy. It's all out of a book. You buy a book and you, you see it coming before, you know, CNN does basically. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of his name now. I'm going, I'm going to go crazy. Uh, he wrote the Psychology of Money. Um, oh, Morgan Housel. Morgan Housel. Yeah. On one of his blogs, he talked about like people say, um, you know, things are changing at a rapid pace, but maybe it's instructive to ask the question: What are the things that won't change in the next twenty years? Mm-hmm. And like, yes, there's all this change happening, but the and the point of why I'm connecting those is human nature, how we respond to crisis, that natural disasters will happen, that wars sadly will break out, that recessions will come and go. Those are things that don't change. Now, what causes the recession, all of the ones that I've been in business for have all been different, right? I remember a recession in the 90s. And I'm trying to think it, I felt like it was a hangover from some of the tax policies of the 80s. And so it was more regional to the Northeast of America. I remember that much. That was just like, I was in my first job then. So Mm -hmm. I was just starting to pay attention. I went through the tech bubble and bust after 9-11. And that was, you know, like what happens happens, but what caused it and how we worked through it were different. Mm -hmm. The Great Recession was incredibly unusual in the history, right? It was the second worst recession of all time. And then COVID was like a meteor strike. Aliens landed. I mean, no one could have anticipated it, but they could have said, you know what? About every 20 years, something that's going to feel like a meteor strike is going to happen. happen. And yep. That would be true. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. So I, I like the idea of going up one level and say, yes, there, there's going to be a 500-year event about every 15 to 25 years. Just plan on it. Yeah, it's so true. And you can learn so much from who came before you. I remember I was reading a Churchill book and they were, this is like in World War II, they're thinking about how to cross the English Channel. And he's like, and he's like, how did they, how did William the Conqueror do it back in the Middle Ages who went to France and who crossed the English Channel? And uh, they were looking like the routes that he took like a thousand years before. Like it's it's crazy what you can learn. And there's a lot of the principles remain the same. How about, um, Have you read, uh, if you're a Winston Churchill fan, are you yeah, a Winston Churchill fan? Absolutely. So a great book is by Gretchen Rubin okay. called 40 Ways of Looking at Winston Churchill. Really? And Gretchen Rubin, all right. 
Yeah, no, it's like one of her things. And evidently, there's more biographies written of Churchill than pretty much anyone else. Yep. And she's like a connoisseur of them and realized, depending on which ones you read, he's a good father, a bad father, yeah, a sure, good oh, yeah. politician, a bad father. And she presents them yeah. in opposition throughout. And it yeah. really paints a unique picture of his life. So if you're a fan, I recommend that book. I am all over that. I'm going to put that in the show notes. So I bought one. I love Andrew Roberts. He has one, a Churchill book this big. And <laughs> I bought it three years ago. And it still scares me to open it. It's just so thick. Uh, I might have to uh, punt and go to well, the this, What's good about the Gretchen Rubin is she reads the, the book. I yeah. actually listened to it on yeah, yeah. audio and adored it because she's a great reader. Like, She's she's great. I actually she has a book uh, not to go off track, the Happiness Project. It's a line yeah. a day journal, and uh, my wife and I have done that journal for like eight or nine years. We have uh, we're like on our second book, and we could look back like eight years ago, like what what happened that day that you know caught our attention. It was pretty cool. Uh, love I, I love it, love it. How about the fourth one? You put live outside your comfort zone. See change as a strategy, not a threat. Then uh, I, I kind of four star this one. Change is inevitable participation is optional. <laughs> well, that's a playoff of an older quote that survival is optional. Okay. That came from another book, right? It's not just participation, survival of yeah. your company, maybe not you personally. The one that struck me of those was make change a part of your strategy, not something that you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. I think when these big monumental moments happen, and maybe we're like, we keep waiting for the other shoe to drop with inflation, mm-hmm. right? I know that the housing market is in a deep recession. Pretty much any business that relies on the cost of money right now is hurt really bad. Mm-hmm. And the cost of money is high, not just for houses, but for anybody that needs to, you know, they need to borrow money to, to make inventory to sell it later. Like it affects anybody who relies on the cost of money. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is doing great. Unemployment's yeah. unbelievable. Right. The jobs report. So you're like, where are we in this whole thing? I think that most people respond to change with, I don't want to. I don't want to participate in this. But when you lean into it, it's kind of amazing what happens. This might be going all the way back to charge the storm. But like, I'll tell you a conversation that never made it in the podcast that didn't make it onto the stage. We were talking, uh, we did a piece for one of ours called the the 12 people mistakes CEO makes. And we'll probably do a full podcast on it. But one of them was they don't hire killers. And that killers as in, you know, like the type, like someone who's going to kill it in the job, not literally assassins, right? And Jason is one of our partners said, you know, I don't know that I'm hiring the right people. And how would I even know? And Gary basically said, Rarely it's in their history, but what you have to do as their leaders, you have to always be pushing them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. See what happens when they have to make rapid adjustments. There are people, and it's like he it goes, there are some people that, yes, they are really good at that, but everybody can learn. And when Gary said that, like four days prior, no, 11 days prior, he had asked us to take a collection of these one-page models that that one of my colleagues had been building in the and turn it into a published book. And he wanted it like in less than two weeks. Wow. It was an incredible ask on the cusp of one of our biggest events and have it for sale at that event. And wow. he, he didn't do it like a tyrant. He just said, I want you to 
ask the question, what will we have to do and how can you make this happen? Is it possible? And what are the risks? And we ended up doing it. We ended up selling like, gosh, I want to say 15,000 copies of that in the first month. Wow. Which is would be huge for a traditional book, much less one that's just basically something we had manufactured and spiral bound, right? Mm -hmm. But I immediately started asking the question because it, it, it had been kind of hell to do that. And I was like, oh, he just tested us. He didn't wait. Like periodically, he asked for something that feels like it might be impossible just to show us that we're capable of it. Mm -hmm. So when the market crashes, that's not necessarily part of our belief system that we won't make it. Does that make sense? Like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Mr. Miyagi, you know, uh -oh. wax on wax off. And I don't even know why I'm doing it. But like, there was a little bit of that moment for me. I was like, oh, I'm living in this quote right now. Yeah. You mentioned about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. You mentioned Mr. Miyagi and like you look at the map behind me. One of the reasons like the, the myself and a bunch of my friends trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the odds of us getting into me getting into a fight at 50 years old is very low. But like <laughs> we train, we train like this morning, we trained at 6 a.m. and we're all wrestling and trying to choke each other unconscious. That's the most uncomfortable we're going to be all day, no matter what happens with customers, yeah. with whatever you do. Like I have someone 50 pounds heavier, 10 years younger on me trying to choke me unconscious. And there's no way, unless something absolutely insane happens to me the rest of the day, I'll never be that uncomfortable where the rest of the day is going to be a breeze. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And I, I and they wonder why you're so chill and you're so relaxed. Well, I already got my panic attack earlier in the morning training jujitsu, so like I'm fine the rest of the day. Well, it's like the uh, the Duke women's basketball coach that video, yeah. and I shared it in my newsletter not long ago. She's like, "Learn to do hard better." Yeah, yeah, learn and to do. Yeah. It, it is a really good thing. It's hard to do as a parent some days because our instinct is to make it easier. But my wife told me once, because I was impatient and I was tying uh, my youngest shoes because we were going to be late to school and I was going to be late to work. And she said, I know why you did that. But you realize every time you tie his shoes, you're not just making the morning go better. You're suddenly telling him that you don't believe he can do it. Yeah. And that was a hard thing for me to hear. Yeah. And I was like, okay then we're going to have to get up earlier and do it better so that that hard task, he will discover that he can do it. And it's just going to take patience and time. Yeah, it's like a short-term win, but long-term negative results. Because it, 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 you get that short-term win, but you don't build that long-term independence or confidence. Yeah, I could, We do that all the time. We're trying to have a great year at the expense of our career. Yeah, no, I totally, totally true. A great day at the expense of the month or the quarter. Totally got it. How about yeah. the next point that you and Gary speak of? Focus on what you can control. And that sounds so cliche. Kind of like my backup point was don't fight what you can't control. It is, it sounds like, oh, that's easy to do. It is so easy to get wrapped up in things that you cannot control. Say there's 10 things in front of you. There might be only two you can control, one you can influence a little, and the rest you, you can't do anything about. And your whole attention's got to be on those three things that you have some sort of influence with, right? Yeah. And it has to be repeated often because for whatever reason, people don't hear it. No. Uh, they don't live it in the moment. I mean, I have a lot of friends right now that have families in the Middle East that are just doom scrolling as soon as they get home. Yeah. And I feel horrible about it. It's heartbreaking. At the same time, it's like, how much energy do I want to give something that I don't have much control over? Mm -hmm. 
right? I mean, wherever that is, right? If I'm if I'm watching the stock market go down and I'm invested in the stock market, I can't control the stock market. I can only control my reaction to it. Yep. So I actually would say your response to it. I think that's one thing that we could all differentiate. It's okay to have the reaction of, oh, crap, mm -hmm. this sucks. This is horrible. But then you have to rationally to say, now, as a business person, this is a business context, how am I going to respond? Mm -hmm. And if, when you make that shift from reaction to response, you're on the right track. Let's just say you're in a business meeting and you have a colleague that says something or does something during the meeting that you really are against. You can um you can go off the handle and say something almost like the toothpaste out of the tube, something you could regret for months on end. Yeah. Right. Or you could like take a breath. That was that Victor Frankl say that distance between things that make you respond and your response, right? That, that space that, that make that space as long as possible and just figure out what you can control, keep your emotions in check, and then just handle what's in your control. That's all you can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a, it's easy to say. So Easy to, to hear, hard to do. Yeah, it's it's so hard. To, I, it's yeah. I I will say this: the more times you go through difficult things, and the more confidence you have that you will survive, the easier it is to go from reaction to response. Yep. And yeah, and that, that just comes with some wisdom, right? It's like yep. I've been through tough times before. This might be different, but I am resilient. I am resourceful, or we are resilient. We are resourceful. It might suck, but we'll find a way. And that's yeah. just a very different attitude to acknowledge the pain, but also believe that there will be a path out. And I like, maybe it's crazy to think, and maybe we'll look back on this and there's a gift here that we're not seeing today. Yeah, that, that gift in the silver lining, that, that, like that silver lining in the cloud, that there's always a gift that comes out of some struggle. No matter how horrible it is, there's always some positive that comes out of it. No, well, so true. sometimes there's the only thing positive out of it is a lesson learned. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, true. I true. think my worst days often bring my hardest but best lessons. Mm -hmm. If I learned them, then I can avoid having another horrible day like that. But it doesn't change the nature of the day. There's nothing else redeemable about it other than I can guarantee you I will not make that mistake twice. You're never <laughs> going to do that. Yeah, you're, you're never going to do that again, right? So that, that yeah. situation may be just a pile of crap that you have to deal with. And, and you may regret that decision for a long time. But knowing that if you're ever in that situation again, you're going to respond differently. You're not going to react. You're going to respond. And it's going to be different. No, that's great. Yeah. The last point about the recession mindset, the sixth thing. And this is probably the one I went deepest on. Learn to live with certainty during uncertain times. Know who you are, know who you are not. And the other point I put is when you know who you are, you know what brings you purpose and power. Yeah. There are moments where if you understand what truly matters and like the things that you're certain of, I love my wife, I love my kids, then some of the material things are easier to shed. My favorite stories from Ryan Holiday's um, The Obstacle is the Way. Oh, love it. Uh, Thomas Edison had his huge complex and it caught on fire. And they were like chemicals. I mean, the whole place is burning down. He's losing yeah. everything. And his son finds him in the dark staring at the flames. And he just turns and says, go find your mother and sisters and bring them here. They'll never see a fire like this again in their lifetime. And I just was like, your way. It's a how, great story. How? 
but I mean, he'd done hard things. He'd invented the impossible. Yeah. And so like, there's a part of him that's like, you know, they can't take that from me. This disaster won't. And like, I'm sure he was already plotting, oh, how do I rebuild better? And he did. And he was more profitable after. That's crazy. Go grab your mother. She'll never see a fire like this again. That is so <laughs> crazy. So crazy. It stuck with me, that story. Yeah, it did. That book. Uh, that, I read that book. I found Ryan during, I blew my ACL out like the, the year it came out. And I read that book like three times during the rehab. And I uh, just, yeah, inc- incredible writer, incredible writing. And uh, speaking of books, Gary mentions nine out of 10 times you and Gary find your breakthrough through books. I know we mentioned this already, but you don't underestimate the value of learning a lesson in something like that through, through Edison or something through history, right? I know a lot of smart people that would say the same things. There's no price to a library card. So you don't even have to put a price tag on it. You have mm-hmm. access to all the knowledge of the millennia that's been recorded. And a lot of times, because it had to be written, people had to make better sense of it than they could at the time it happened. So there is a lot of wisdom to be learned if you're willing to look back at history. Yeah, so true. And then another point during the uncertain times, you and Gary mentioned, study your competition, but more importantly, other study other industries to find your best ideas. Just me personally, in my little micro world, I use your 20% newsletter. Like I am not in the real estate business at all, but I'm in like the people business, the sales business, the growth business. And you have just ideas and principles in that 20% newsletter that that just can go across any industry. You could kind of get it, make it your own and, and apply it to your industry. But that's what you're speaking of, right? Stealing ideas from other industries. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of times there's like different ways that creativity shows up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's borrowing an idea that works in another industry that they think of as common, but it's uncommon in yours. Mm-hmm. Sure. So even though in real estate, they'd be like, everybody does that. But in medical sales, people are like, where are you? What planet are you from? And they're going to think you're crazy creative. Mm-hmm. So I usually just tell people, because I'm an author, if you're going to borrow someone's words, give them credit. If you're going to take an idea, which people do, and combine it, Frankenstein it into something better, I still like to give credit wherever possible. Just make it your own. Sure. Like if you've read um, Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. Love it. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Like, yes, you can borrow and be inspired by the greats, mm-hmm. but then you have to make it your own. That is the journey. What's going on in Austin? Austin, Cleon, Holiday, Ryan Holiday, yourself. Oh, got some writers down I there. I saw that Austin. t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. The, There's uh, a lot of creatives here. I mean, Nashville is kind of a sister city. Yeah. If you don't want to live in LA or New York, it's one of those hubs. Yeah. Where, like, I think uh, Tim Ferriss kind of led the way when yeah, he was yeah. here. Yep. Um, then Noah Kagan came and a few other kind of in that kind of category of podcasting and YouTube and some other things. You know, then you've got Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. And now it's like they had enough gravitational pull yep. to kind of pull their friends and posse in. And then that, you know, creates a little bit of a wave. It's like a Silicon Valley for writers and creative types down there. It's crazy. That's so cool. Just wrapping up here. I know your time's limited. Jay, a couple of fun questions, a couple of rapid fire at the end. Yeah. Uh, okay. Get, yep. Real quick. So what purchase, and I'll give credit. Are you, I'm a huge Tim Ferriss fan. These are sort of, uh, I stole some of these ideas from him. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less most positively impacted your life? Can you think of something? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, I'll cheat. And I think it was like $135. During COVID, we got a massage gun. 
Yeah. And I've had three spinal surgeries. So I've gotten my money's worth out of that sucker. I was just reflecting to my wife that we bought just one of those portable chargers for your phone. Mm -hmm. And it's been on like three continents with us. And I just keep thinking it's just going to die. Yeah. But like whenever we know that we're going to be like on a long plane ride or whatever, yeah. we were just talking about it at the F1 race. And I was like, cause I didn't, my son had borrowed it to go on a trip. And I was like, ah, oh, man, that thing, I was trying to remember how long ago we bought it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm real simple. Like I, I have to wear a mouth guard at night. Yep. I got one of those little, I think it's probably like less than a hundred dollars, like little Sonic things that cleans it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Right. Cause okay. it's just gross to put a yeah. mouth guard in your mouth that it's not clean. And so for me to get that super clean and not have to do it manually, yeah. love it. So uh, I'm, I'm a simple man. Stuff like that is going to be on the top of my list. I appreciate that. Perfect. How about what's the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your industry? That's a great question. That's a great question. I think that a lot of people... Oh, and this is in real estate, way over indexed on the brand on the big sign matters. Mm-hmm. That I think that it's not about the brand, it's about the culture. And uh, sometimes they're synonymous, but I see a lot of people obsessed with, you know, which brands do revenue sharing, which brands do my advertising, and they're thinking about brands and services versus culture and opportunity. And I, I'll i take a great culture that has the legs of opportunity over someone paying for or doing things for me all day long because I'm going to make more of it. Mm-hmm. You really made me think on that one, though. That was like, <laughs> I had to really think. So great question. Oh, awesome. How about this? What have you changed your mind about over the last few years? You know, I actually shared this on one of my videos, so I'm just going to go with it. Hit me. Go. Um, I used to think that good ideas were far rarer than they are. And mm-hmm. like I was reflecting, somebody was asking me, like, how many books have you and Gary done? And we've done 11 book projects, six of them with our names on them. And, but we've said no to like a thousand ideas. Mm-hmm. Like we are idea machines because we love books and we're always seeing gaps in the market. Ah, so much you write a book about this. Oh, so much you write a book about that. And the reality is the world is full of great ideas, Mm -hmm. but you have to find one that absolutely matches where you're going, your passion and your gifts so that you can go hundred percent all in on it and make it an extraordinary ideas. I think that great ideas will fail. Actually. Mm -hmm. I think it takes an extraordinary idea. I've just gotten even more refined yeah. Because I, I just like people come to me all the time and say, oh, I've got this idea. And everybody says I should write a book. And a lot of times, like I've heard that idea 20 times. Yeah. Because I've been a student of that game for a long time. It's it, it's not a bad idea, but it's not one that's really going to take over the market. So that's kind of where I am. I, I, I do think I was a prey to that. Yeah, sure. I didn't believe in the abundance. Yeah. That I would have another opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And it might be 10 times better. So I would say yes to the first thing only to regret it later. Yep. It, it's it, almost like that Warren Buffett saying, they said for every 99, uh, every great hundred ideas someone brings to me, I say no to 99 of them, even though they're good ideas. Like he, he knows his one thing 
right? He knows what his one thing is. Yeah. And uh, and he just focuses on that. And if it's not in his one thing, you know, he lets someone else go do it because that's he's not he's not losing focus, even though it's a, a good idea, so to speak. Awesome. Last question. Yeah. As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? So uh, in the last year, I would have said the 20 percenter newsletter. That's been my first weekly deadline of my entire writing career. So that's <laughs> been a real journey of building new habits and process. And that's been great. I feel like I'm living that Rocky scene where he's chasing chickens and getting stronger yeah. <laughs> while the inspirational music's going every week. Um, and I really do think I've grown as a writer. So that's been great. But right now, this moment, for 17 years, my wife and I have done a goal-setting retreat. Mm-hmm. And it has made the difference in our relationship. Within a few years of doing it, our friends started asking for our process and we'd share it on a work Microsoft Word doc and then a Google doc. And then eventually, seven years ago, we started hosting an event for other people. And consistently, the number one, like my, I get a lot of this. So maybe I pay the reticular activator makes me pay attention. This saved my marriage. This saved my business. This saved my partnership. Yeah, sure. Right. It's just a, it's a, it's a really good mechanism for getting two people or even one person to really connect with where they're ultimately going, why it's important to them and the next steps they need to do. And if they're going with someone, how to communicate along that journey. It was for us, it was the couples. Yeah. We have two drivers, no support people. Yep. Like, how do we communicate so that we sure. work together? So we're building right now, we're building a on-demand version of that. Awesome. So we're in the process of, instead of people having to always get, I mean, we've done it and we'll keep doing it. It is great in person. And that'll always be a rich two-day experience. There's so many people who just can't afford that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super excited to check us out at the one thing sometime around right before December 1. And I'm super excited that we're going to make that available at a much more affordable price point for everyone. So a virtual goal setting or on demand mm-hmm. goal setting retreat gets me really excited because I know like my number one value is impact. Yeah. And over the years, before we even turned it into a business event, we were helping people in the areas that mattered most for often their marriage their relationship with their kids, their parents, like really deep stuff. Mm-hmm. So I know it has impact and I'm excited to be able to share it with more people. Well, impact, that's, that's especially doing it with your partner. Because when one person has an idea or a vision, if they don't have their partner with you, it's not going to work. Someone wants to get their financial plan in order, life in order, health in order. Like one can't have a super healthy, clean diet and one doesn't, or one says, I'm not going to spend credit cards. Another one says, not on board. Like you got to do that as a partner. You got to do that as a couple, right? Or just, it's going to fall apart. Yeah. And I think that it's going to fall apart or the marriage will. Yeah, right? yeah, sure. <laughs> and, but I do think the thing, the missing ingredient to kind of sell, it's like, I really want to start living within our budget. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to point for the reasons why, but like get someone on board on what their life looks like when they succeed. A lot of people miss the why part, especially when it's not something that's beneficial to both parties. Hey, I think I want to change careers. So I want to quit. I want to go back to school. By the way, that means you're going to be the only income earner. Like that's not the way someone sells it, right? But it feels that way to the other person. It's like, oh, I'm on the hook for the next four years while you get to recreate your life. Mm-hmm. But like creating a space where people can explore that and truly understand it. So it's like when he comes to me with that request, I'm like, okay, 
it's going to be hard. You'll, I'll probably need your help along the way too, but like, let's get through this. And then what happens is like you earn the trust so that you can take turns. Sometimes you're taking turns for a day, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, sometimes for it could be even longer that one person's needs have to kind of be in the lead. Mm-hmm. And then you switch. Yeah. Unfortunately, without that conversation, it's usually whoever is clearest about what they want or the most dominant person. Sure. Yep. And it's a very unbalanced relationship. And that's why it eventually falls apart. Yeah, especially if if you have two drivers, well, that's that's a that's a disaster waiting to happen, right? <laughs> that you're describing me and my wife, which okay. is why we had to come up with a way because we can both be very aggressive. Sure, we can okay. be both very decisive, and what's nice is we often agree a lot. We can mm-hmm. be very like our the person who helped us with our house, like the paint colors. He wanted us to meet for three hours, and I was like, "What do you mean to pick our palette?" He goes, "That's how long it takes." And I was like. It won't take us that long. We'll be done in 30 minutes. He goes, no one's ever done in 30 minutes. We were done in 20. We didn't change a single color. It's like, nope, I like that. Yep, I love that too. Let's go. And like, we're that's who we are. So alignment and understanding and making space for safe conversation is huge. Wow. Safe conversation, alignment, impact, the one thing. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up. The guest is Jay Papazan, the co-author of The One Thing, one of the greatest, one of my favorite books of all time. Just so amazing. Jay, I'm going to put your podcast, the book, um, your goal-setting retreat. I'll put all of that in the show notes. But so good to see you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Now, be careful. Don't let anybody choke you out tomorrow morning. (laughs) You got it, Jay. Thank you, buddy. Take care. All right. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get a summary of the best ideas that he and Gary used to lead Keller Williams through times of crisis and pandemics and market crashes, sign up for the new Built Not Born newsletter. It's in the show notes or it's on all my social media channels. Just Google Built Not Born blog and sign up. One post each week, no spam, easy to sign up, easy to cancel. Hope it brings a lot of value to you. Appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Talk soon.